Nura Erika, thanks so much for joining us today. The massacre of dozens of Palestinians on May 14th has been described by some commentators as Israel Sharpville. We have, of course, seen many, many crimes perpetrated by Israel over the past 70 years. But there was a sense in which this massacre was different. Uh, it arguably once and for all lifted the veil on the true nature of the Zionist occupation, such that even those unwilling to look were forced to see its brutal reality for the first time. Are you of the view the Gaza massacre may yet mark a historical turning point? I think that that discounts the number of massacres that have happened before and how grotesque they are. It's, you know, we continuously in our frustration with the intransigence on this issue and an inability to shift the needle are looking for different ways uh, to understand these ongoing events. And I understand that. So, for example, in the last attack uh, just this past weekend, you know, the news media cycle described it as the worst daylight attack since 2014. The Gaza massacre is described as the worst attack and the largest number of casualties since 2014. The new nation state law is considered as yet, you know, a controversial law. And what what all of that does is tries to fit, it tries to fit a settler colonial process into a, a normal political uh, contest, and that's not the way that it's going to work out. This is structural violence at play. It is a continuous structure of the removal of Palestinians that happens through outright uh, elimination through military means. It also happens quietly through administrative means, like the application of retroactive taxes. It happens through the denial of entry to Palestinians in the diaspora who can't, who cannot enter to visit their families. It happens through the denial of permits to expand one's homes. And so I'm not of the opinion that the massacre was either the worst yet or the worst to come and think that to the contrary what we have is a framework that continues to normalize whatever what Israel does in a, in a national security framework what would be really helpful is to define what Israel does as a settler colonial project aimed at expanding uh, and entrenching its settler sovereignty which means the confiscation of the greatest amount of lands with the least number of Palestinians and the concentration of the greatest number of Palestinians on the least amount of lands. And so once we disrupt any kind of analytical framework that fails to recognize that, I think that we're going to start to stem the violence rather than looking to Israel's escalation of violence in order to say when something has been enough, because at most what we would do then is just ask Israel to kill less but continue its expansion. You mentioned the nation-state law. That's a law that was passed by the Knesset Israel's parliament last Thursday, and it stipulates, and I quote, Israel is the historic homeland of the Jewish people, and they have an exclusive right to national self-determination in it. The legislation also strips Arabic of its official status and codifies the status of Jerusalem as the undivided capital of Israel. The question that arises is a blindingly obvious one. How can Israel pass such a law and maintain the fiction it is a democratic country, given this is clearly a law, one of many, in fact, which formalizes and codifies apartheid? 
Well, I think even before the passage of this law, what's really obvious is that Israel was never a democracy in the sense that it is a country that's governed by the will of its people and population. It has been functioning as an ethnocracy where in law it maintains a series of at least 50 laws that explicitly privilege the rights of Jews and explicitly disenfranchises or subjugates the rights of all others who are predominantly Muslim and Christian Palestinians who constitute 20% of the population. That alone should have been enough to disrupt the fiction that Israel is a democracy. Now we have a nation-state law where Israel is basically taking, you know, its quest of settler colonial sovereignty to its apex to, to basically say everything that we've been saying to erase the presence of Palestinians, to negate that they have the right to belong, to negate the history that they were ever here, to negate the fact that they continue to live here as, you know, either second-class citizens or as captives within the Gaza Strip or occupied people in the West Bank. Um, this is a consecration of that. And you still see in the headlines reference to this as a controversial law rather than outright calling it a racist law. This inability that Israel, to, to, to just call out Israel for its settler colonial and apartheid nature is stunning on the one hand, and on the other hand is part of a framework that wants us to understand that what Israel does is above the law and subject to some sort of uh, framework of exception, because whereas it's done to achieve white supremacy in different uh, settler colonial societies, in this one, it's done, to achieve, it's done in the name of Jewish emancipation, which then binds, you know, it puts us in a bind because, yes, I believe in Jewish emancipation too, so for those who believe in that, this becomes, and, and don't understand the history of Jewish persecution, and don't understand the history of what Zionism has cost the Palestinian people. Basically, Zionism is predicated on the erasure, removal, and dispossession of all Palestinian people. It becomes really confusing. And I think what Palestinians are trying to teach the world is that there doesn't have to be a mutually exclusive equation, that Jews can be emancipated from the throes of, of uh, structural anti-Jewish bigotry, and Palestinians can be liberated, but that can't happen if we continue to think about salvation within a sovereignty framework. Sovereignty is about the right to govern oneself, and in this framework it means the right to govern oneself in a nation state. And you can't have those two competing sovereignties and have us lead to an outcome that's mutually beneficial. Somebody has to lose. And so the time has come to push ourselves to think sovereignty is not going to lead to the emancipation of all and will lead down this inevitable route that Israel has put itself on very explicitly on the global stage, which says that it will reside over a religious racial supremacy upheld by military power and dominance, supported by a global empire in the form of the U.S. today, possibly China tomorrow, um, uh, forcefully against everybody's will. So it's really up to an international community to take a look at that and decide maybe we should think about this in a different equation. Maybe we should flip the equation. Maybe we should decenter sovereignty. Maybe we should think of, of, of better solutions for humanity to be able to exist on this earth rather than this 
uh, which we don't even have to be theoretical or hypothetical about, we are seeing where it's leading us, and it's leading us to a very violent future. In recent years, we've seen the tragic transformation of the Arab Spring into the Arab winter, with ongoing wars in Yemen and Syria, the restoration of dictatorship in Egypt and so on. It seemed for a time at the height of the Arab Spring that a popular revolt throughout the Arab world might, as it were, come to Palestine's rescue and that history would finally turn in the direction of national liberation for the Palestinian people. From where do you ultimately see the wellspring of liberation originating? from the Arab masses, a shift in Western public opinion, especially in the United States, or from the struggle of the Palestinian people themselves? So one, I just want to question the assumption of whether or not the Arab uprisings represented hope for the Palestinians. I think, if anything, the Arab uprisings are, are reflect a fervor and a passion and an ongoing resistance amongst the Palestinian people who have been resisting and sacrificing for seven decades and more. And so during the Arab uprisings, I think it was really hopeful uh, for everyone to see that the vestiges of uh, what was, you know, what was once an anti-colonial fervor be disrupted by the uprising of people who want to govern themselves and create alternative futures. And now we see the backlash of that. And a backlash that finds residents uh, with the United States that would rather uphold stability than it would to see democracy, because if you have democracy, then obviously the will of the people would undermine the U.S.'s intervention and the U.S.'s dominance in the Middle East, which was never meant to benefit the people, but always meant to protect its interests, its geopolitical interests, its trade routes, uh, its security interests, to be able to have a proliferation of bases so that it can maintain its hegemony through the Pacific as well as, you know, against Europe. And so we see now very interesting alliances, disappointing ones but not surprising ones, uh, between Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the UAE, and Israel against Syria and Iran and other non-state actors, um, and, and which makes us think, well, how is, the, how is the Middle East now being fractured and reconfigured no longer along the lines of national, you know, Arab nationalism, but instead along the lines of sectarian militarized interests? Um, how, what is the way out for that? It's not just about Palestinians. Thinking about the way out for that is thinking about how Americans and Western communities are going to overcome the predominance of neoliberal logic that wants to benefit a few and protect that wealth that is basically accumulated by dispossession through uh, militarism on the one hand, and also figure out ways of how is it that we can find a way to protect one another without resorting to a, uh, a, a nationalism that are increasingly chauvinistic and exclusive. So the conditions that are afflicting Palestinians in that lens are the conditions that are afflicting everybody. Palestinians have the added burden of having, you know, being subject to an eliminatory policy that not only wants to dispossess and subjugate them, but wants to erase them altogether. Israel has not recognized, despite its recognition of the PLO, does not recognize the juridical right of Palestinians to be self-determined 
and still advocates that they be absorbed by other Arab states and that they be forcibly transferred. And the whole object, now this whole effort, in order to change the definition of the Palestinian refugee within UNRWA or dissolving UNRWA altogether, which is the UN agency responsible for Palestinian refugees, is part of an effort to literally erase once and for all, that there is something called Palestinian. And so it's that, that's the added dimension that makes, that animates the struggle in a way that sets it apart, but uh, doesn't at all mitigate that, that, that there is a universal struggle of which Palestinians are part and parcel. Finally, Nora Arakat, what can we do here in Australia to aid the cause of Palestinian liberation? How important, for instance, is it for Australians to support the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, which essentially calls for the economic isolation of Israel? I think that what Australians can do absolutely is that they can participate in boycott, divestment and sanctions to overcome diplomatic intransigence and the fact that their government doesn't necessarily represent them, but is trying to represent national interests, which are not necessarily the interests of the people, but more likely reflect the interests of an economic and political elite. That's the very least that Australians can do even to act out their conscience. Um, And even if it doesn't economically isolate, isolate Israel, what it does is it creates enough controversy to be able to have this discussion. I think more important what's, not, what's necessary for Australians to do here is to shift a culture about how we think through racism and how we think through settler colonialism, not as some historic practice, but as an ongoing practice. There is right now an effort amongst the Djerb Wunung, I think that's how you pronounce it, Djerb Wunung um, nation that is fighting for against a highway to be built in Victoria that would decimate a series of trees, including an 800-year-old birthing tree where 56 generations um, were birthed. And so part of the struggle for Palestine is the struggle against this logic that a highway at the expense of native sovereignty, at the expense of Native culture, at the expense of Native history, at the expense of Native uh, existence in Australia, where you've already issued a public apology, is, is, is absolutely central. Being able to acknowledge uh, that these discourses of civilizational advancement are as- actually masking a process of native erasure is precisely the discourse that's, that's driving the erasure of Palestinians. And so if you support the struggle for Palestine, you need to support settler decolonization here in Australia, not just as a matter of word, but, as, but in practice as well.